You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Thanks for downloading episode 38 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last show, we talked about the threat to Washington, D.C. in April 1861, caused by Virginia's secession and also by the hostility of the still-wavering slave state of Maryland. Wild rumors of Confederate invasion swept through the capital, causing near panic. The Treasury Building was hastily turned into an armed fortress where the city's defenders and President Lincoln and his cabinet could take refuge if one of the rumored attacks took place. In the last episode, we also talked about the first contingent of volunteer troops to arrive in the vulnerable capital, that is, the five companies of Pennsylvania militia who traveled through Maryland on their way to the defense of Washington and how they were assaulted by a taunting, rock-throwing, pro-Confederate mob as they moved through the streets of Baltimore. And then hard on the heels of the Pennsylvanians' arrival was news that Virginia militia, at the urging of ex-Governor Henry Wise, had seized the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry. And after the capture of the arsenal, it appears there were some rather sketchy plans for the Virginia militia at Harper's Ferry to be carried by train either to take arms to the secessionists in Baltimore or to move on Washington, D.C. itself. And ironically, it seems that one of the major reasons that nothing came of these plans is that because of their sensitivity to the state's rights issue, the hostile Virginians were hesitant to cross over into Maryland. But with the news of Virginia's secession and the capture of Harper's Ferry and the fact that the Pennsylvania militia had been roughed up on their way through Baltimore, The nation, on April 19th, realized that Washington, D.C. was to be the first front line in the new war. A headline in the April 19, 1861 New York Herald newspaper read, Stirring and decisive news, Virginia seceded, Washington and the line of the Potomac to be the battlefield. The article that followed said, Virginia has seceded. She has taken this dreadful leap in the dark, and terrible to her, we fear, will be the consequences. A revolutionary army under Governor Wise is supposed to be moving upon Washington. End quote. While the men of the 1st Pennsylvania had experienced a bit of an ordeal and had been roughed up a bit on their way through Baltimore, They nevertheless managed to traverse the hostile city largely unscathed, but the next contingent of troops rushing south to defend Washington would not be so lucky. The next regiment scheduled to reach the capital was the 6th Massachusetts. 
That militia unit was one of four that had been preparing and drilling in the Bay State for several months, on the assumption that the first wave of secession had made war inevitable. A lawyer and Democratic politician named Benjamin Butler was just one of several Massachusetts militia commanders, but it was Butler who managed to finagle his way into leading the first troops that would leave the state. Since Butler will pop up in our story from time to time from here on out, We'll take a few minutes here to describe him and to share just how he came to command the first Massachusetts troops to leave the state, since this particular story gives you a pretty good idea of what kind of guy Butler was. All right, anyway, we'll put a photo up on the website, but here's how historian David Detzer, in his book Dissonance, The Turbulent Days Between Fort Sumter and Bull Run, here's how he describes Butler. Quote, Benjamin Franklin Butler was almost shockingly ugly. At 43 years old, he looked as doughy as a 200-pound sack of suet. His hair had already receded to the farthest ranks of his pate, and he kept his sideburns and the mane at the back of his head long. A sorry mustache hung below his nose, but he was otherwise clean-shaven. Deep bags sagged below both eyes. He also had an unfortunate condition known as strabismus, in which his left eye crossed, squinting somewhere off toward the right, end quote. All right, so he was no Brad Pitt, but while he may have been a bit odd-looking, Benjamin Butler was feisty, shrewd, and smart. Butler was a very powerful, very wealthy lawyer in Massachusetts, and he also was influential in politics. As a Democrat, he was elected to the State House and then the Massachusetts Senate, and he even ran unsuccessfully for governor. In 1860, he was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention, where he voted for Stephen Douglas for the first seven ballots, and then he switched his support to Senator Jefferson Davis and famously, stubbornly, voted for the Mississippian on the next 50 ballots. Besides his influence in politics, or perhaps precisely because of that influence, Butler also held the rank of brigadier general in his state's militia, and he had been the senior officer at Massachusetts' annual encampment in 1860 when about 6,000 men had gathered to drill and socialize. Well, they gathered to drill and socialize, but to more accurately reflect the pre-war militia's priorities, we might switch that around and say they gathered to socialize and drill. And having said that, we should probably take a second here to point out that with very few exceptions, most militia units in the pre-war North and South, like the ones we're talking about here from Pennsylvania or Massachusetts, their primary activities before the war revolved around parades and ceremonial functions in their local communities. For all their martial pretensions, the militia companies in both North and South were more social clubs than genuine military organizations. However, as most of these pre-war militia units would very quickly discover, there was a world of difference between marching in a parade and the hard training that was needed for a unit to be able to maneuver and fight on a battlefield. With a few exceptions, that is, those few who might be Mexican War veterans, with those few exceptions, these men in the pre-war militia companies really had no idea of war's realities. And it didn't help matters that most of the officers in the militia 
were simply men like Benjamin Butler who were prominent in their local communities, lawyers or businessmen or whatnot, or in the South, wealthy planners. But for the most part, they were men with no military experience whatsoever. And as many of these guys would quickly discover, just because you were a successful lawyer or businessman, or influential politician, or a wealthy planner in civilian life, didn't guarantee you had the necessary leadership skills to effectively lead a military unit in a war setting. So, having said all that, back to the story. All right. Well, apparently Benjamin Butler was in the middle of a court case when he received word on April 15th about Abraham Lincoln's call for volunteers. So Butler self-importantly told the judge that he was needed to get troops ready to leave for Washington, and he would have to leave the trial immediately. So off Butler rushed. On the train on his way to Boston, he just happened to run into the president of a Boston bank, and it seems that then and there, Butler devised a scheme to elevate himself above the other Massachusetts militia commanders and ensure he was the officer who would lead the first troops to leave the state. You see, Butler knew that the state legislature wasn't in session and that the governor would therefore have to seek out funds from somewhere else in order to have the money to transport the state's troops to Washington. And where better to get the money than from a Boston bank? And who better to secure those funds than Benjamin Butler? So on that train ride, Butler got the bank president to agree to loan the state the money. And when they arrived in Boston, Butler even accompanied the man to the bank and waited while he wrote out a note on official bank stationery. But before the ink was dry, Butler took the note and then rushed over to see the Republican governor of Massachusetts, John A. Andrew. Once inside the governor's office, Butler led off by saying he wished to be appointed as the officer to lead the first of the state's troops to leave for Washington. Well, Governor Andrew, who, as a Republican, didn't really trust Butler, who was a Democrat, Andrew replied that such an appointment was unlikely, especially since he already had someone else in mind. But then it was pointed out to the governor that the state lacked the necessary funds to send any troops to Washington, and that such funds wouldn't be available until the legislature convened. That would mean a delay of days or weeks, and the governor had already promised Washington that Massachusetts would immediately send troops. But hey, Ben Butler just happened to have this note from the president of a Boston bank. Within a few hours, it was official. Benjamin Butler would be in command of the 1st Massachusetts troops to leave the state for the war. After the War Department received Governor Andrews' pledge that Massachusetts troops would be quickly forwarded to the vulnerable capital, Secretary of War Simon Cameron told the governor he was to send the men south by train. But then Winfield Scott decided he wanted some of the men to go to reinforce Fortress Monroe on the coast of Virginia, so it turned out that some of the base staters would go to Washington by train, and some would proceed to Virginia by ship. But the 6th Massachusetts, commanded by Colonel Edward Jones, would lead the way south, and they would go by train through Maryland. Unfortunately for Jones and his men, after the passage of the 1st Pennsylvania through Baltimore, the city was in an uproar. 
Longtime listeners to the podcast will remember Senator Charles Sumner from episode number 13. He was the senator from Massachusetts who in 1856 was attacked by South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks on the floor of the Senate chamber. Well, anyway, on the evening of April 18th, just after the Pennsylvania militia had already been roughed up, Brooks stopped in Baltimore to visit friends while on his way home to Boston from Washington. Well, after he checked into his hotel, word quickly spread that the famous abolitionist was in the city, and soon enough, a large, angry mob gathered outside the building. They threatened to burn the hotel down if Sumner didn't come out. But luckily, he was visiting his friends, and by the time he returned to the hotel, it was very late, and in the darkness, he was able to slip in a side door. He changed rooms for his safety, and then left at 4 a.m., again by a side door, and then Sumner made it to the train station safely and left the city early on the morning of the 19th. Meanwhile, the train carrying the 700-plus men of the 6th Massachusetts was heading southward after passing through New York City and Philadelphia. Also on board were almost a 1,000 Pennsylvania militiamen from the Philadelphia area, but like the men of the five Pennsylvania companies that had passed through Baltimore the day before, these men were also mostly unarmed. We should mention that, unlike the man Pennsylvania kept sending off with no weapons, the troops from Massachusetts were, relatively speaking, well-equipped and well-armed. In fact, they were armed with modern rifle muskets produced at the Federal Arsenal there in Springfield in Massachusetts. Right. So as his unit headed south, Colonel Jones received warnings that the 6th Massachusetts would very likely meet with resistance as they passed through Baltimore, so he ordered that each man be issued with 20 rounds of ammunition and that the men load their rifles. Thirty miles outside Baltimore, Jones circulated through the passenger cars carrying his regiment and issued orders to the men. He said, quote, The regiment will march through Baltimore in column of sections. You will undoubtedly be insulted, abused, and perhaps assaulted, to which you must pay no attention whatever, but march with your faces square to the front and pay no attention to the mob, even if they throw stones, bricks, or other missiles. But if you are fired upon and any of you is hit, your officers will order you to fire. End quote. Colonel Jones' final order was, Do not fire into any promiscuous crowds, but select any man whom you may see aiming at you, and be sure to drop him. When the train pulled into Baltimore's President Street Station at 20 minutes after 11 on the morning of the 19th, the city's secessionists were ready for it. They had been forewarned of the train's progress by telegraph and were going to make a more coordinated effort to prevent the passage of the northern troops. As the train slowed down at the city's outskirts, Baltimore's fire stations started ringing their alarm bells as a signal. And then Colonel Jones had a surprise. He had planned on marching his men in a compact column through the hostile city, but now he was told that each car would be hauled one by one by teams of horses through the city streets to the other train station. As workers carried out the transfer of the passenger cars, a large, noisy crowd was already gathered, and they filled the air with pro-Confederate cheers. The carriages, with lowered window blinds, started to be hauled by horses along President Street to Pratt Street, where they turned west to run along the waterfront to end up at the Camden Street Station. 
Policemen tried to prevent the ever-growing crowd from mobbing the slowly moving train cars or blocking the tracks. But one journalist recalled that as the cars passed through the downtown area, quote, the entire community was perfectly wild with excitement. Hundreds of people were rushing toward the railroad track on Pratt Street with the intention of preventing the passage of troops, end quote. Despite the hostility of the mob, nine of the passenger cars carrying the 6th Massachusetts reached the other train station, no worse for the experience except for some windows shattered by rocks. But then as the anxious troops in those carriages waited for the 10th and final car bearing their comrades, they heard rifle fire erupt in the distance. The 10th passenger car had derailed on Pratt Street because the mob had dumped cartloads of sand on the tracks and it also dragged four or five large anchors from the waterfront and placed them across the street. No sooner had the carriage ground to a halt than rocks began to fly thick and fast, shattering windows, and sprang the men inside the train car with broken glass. Some of the Massachusetts men were cut by the shards of glass, and a few of their comrades wanted to open fire on their assailants, but instead everyone was ordered to lie down as best they could on the floor of the carriage. Meanwhile, outside, men with crowbars, picks, and shovels started to tear up the tracks. As the furious crowd was about to force an entrance into the besieged passenger car, the police made their appearance and just managed to keep the mob from storming the carriage. The police told Captain Alan Follinsby, who commanded the troops in the trapped car, that they would escort them to the Camden Street Station. Follinsby was caught in an impossible situation, so he agreed, and the Massachusetts men got out of the carriage and formed up. The police did their best to open up a path for the soldiers, but the mob, several thousand strong by this time, pelted the column with rocks and bricks and pressed in until the surrounded troops couldn't advance any further. One of the Massachusetts men, Charles Taylor, was struck on the back of the head by a paving stone and fell into the gutter where he was beaten to death. John and Charles Lockwood, in their book Siege of Washington, describe what happened next. Quote, that brutal act unleashed gunfire on both sides. The previously untested Massachusetts men started firing at hostile groups or armed onlookers, on their own, not as part of a platoon firing. Their military order was breaking down, and they were continually jostled by the crowd. Sometimes the troops were pushed as they took aim, and their bullets struck the second floors of nearby buildings, sending pieces of shattered brick to the street and leaving scars on the building's wall. At other times, the soldiers' aim was better. Several Massachusetts volunteers later recalled the test that many soldiers must meet, shooting another person for the first time. Edwin T. Spofford, who had been wounded by a member of the mob, described his feelings when he shot and killed an attacker who had fired at one of his comrades. I felt bad at first when I saw what I had done, but it soon passed off, and as I had done my duty and was not the aggressor, I was soon able to fire again and again. End quote. By the time the Massachusetts men battled their way through to the Camden Street Station, many of them were injured so seriously that their comrades had to carry them toward safety. Four of the soldiers were killed outright or later died of their wounds. It's difficult to determine the civilian casualties, but the number most often cited is 12 dead. Before departing Massachusetts, 
One member of the sixth, Corporal Sumner Needham from Lawrence, had written a quick note to his wife. He told her the regiment would be leaving for Washington soon, and that he wasn't sure whether they would be stationed in the capital or moved to some other dangerous place. He told her he knew she was unhappy about his departure, but the duty he was embarking on was important. And then he told her, quote, My heart is full for you, and I hope we may meet again. I shall believe that we shall. You must hope for the best and be as cheerful as you can. End quote. Less than two days after writing that letter to his wife, Corporal Needham was fatally wounded when the 6th Massachusetts passed through Baltimore. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. And just as a footnote, but in Baltimore, as the ten passenger cars carrying the 6th Massachusetts crossed the city, the thousand unarmed Pennsylvania militiamen, along with 24 members of the Massachusetts Regiment Band, had been left behind back at the President Street Station. They were also attacked by a mob, and while the frightened band members bolted the train station and had quite an adventure evading the mob, including being sheltered in a um, house of ill repute, the Pennsylvanians stayed put and were eventually rescued by the police. When Washingtonians learned that afternoon of the 6th Massachusetts impending arrival, an excited crowd gathered at the B&O Railroad Station. But, like the arrival of the 1st Pennsylvania, it's debatable whether the Bay Stater's arrival in the vulnerable capital was more alarming or reassuring. At the train station, the Washingtonians saw hundreds of exhausted and hungry men 
in dirty and ripped uniforms, and several dozen badly wounded men had to be borne away on stretchers. In his book, Battle Cry of Freedom, James McPherson writes, quote, Maryland flamed with passion to prevent more northern regiments from entering Baltimore. The mayor and the chief of police, with the reluctant approval of Governor Hicks, ordered the destruction of bridges on the railroads. Secessionists also tore down telegraph lines from Washington through Maryland. The national capital was cut off from the north. For several days, rumors were the only form of information reaching Washington. They grew to alarming proportions. Virginia regiments and armed Maryland secessionists were said to be converging on the capital. Washington was gripped by a siege mentality. Government clerks formed themselves into volunteer companies. Reports filtered through of an aroused North and, one, and of more regiments determined to force their way through Maryland at any cost. But the rumors of an impending attack by Virginians seemed more real than the hope of rescue from the North. End quote. Meanwhile, Tad and Willie Lincoln did their part to defend Washington by building a fort on the White House roof. Edwin Stanton, who will eventually replace Simon Cameron as Lincoln's Secretary of War, wrote to former President James Buchanan, saying, quote, no description could convey to you the panic that prevailed here for several days after the Baltimore riot, end quote. By the evening of the 21st, Washington had lost all telegraph service with the North. One of Abraham Lincoln's secretaries caught the president looking out the windows of the White House, murmuring, Why don't they come? Why don't they come? In answer to the president's question, two more Union regiments were staging for their departure to the endangered capital. But with communication with Washington broken and Baltimore in an uproar, the 8th Massachusetts and Benjamin Butler, as well as the much-heralded 7th New York, would have to reach the capital by another route. The most promising alternative was to send the troops by ship to Annapolis, on the Chesapeake Bay, 20 miles south of Baltimore, and from there they could march overland 40 miles to Washington or risk traveling on the Annapolis and Elk Ridge Railroad, which ran from Annapolis to Washington. Hearing of this, secessionists threatened to block the new route, and when a delegation of concerned Marylanders called on Abraham Lincoln at the White House to say that no more soldiers must pass through Baltimore, the weary and exasperated president snapped and told them, Quote, you gentlemen, come here to me and ask for peace on any terms, and yet have no word of condemnation for those who are making war on us. You express great horror of bloodshed, and would not lay a straw in the way of those who are organizing in Virginia and elsewhere to capture this city. I have no desire to invade the South. Well... Yeah, well, Lincoln was kind of blowing smoke there. But anyway, the president continued... But I must have troops to defend the capital. Geographically, it lies surrounded by the soil of Maryland, and mathematically, the necessity exists that they shall come here over her territory. Our men are not moles and can't dig in the earth. They are not birds and can't fly through the air. There is no way but march across, and that they must do. End quote. And then Lincoln warned them that should more Union troops be harmed in any way, I will lay Baltimore in ashes. On April 21st and 22nd, the 8th Massachusetts and the 7th New York landed at Annapolis. Finding that the secessionists had removed the locomotives from the place and had ripped up the tracks on the line out of the city, 
Butler was delighted to discover that there were some railway men and mechanics in the ranks of Massachusetts Regiment. When an old locomotive was found in the Annapolis rail yards, a private stepped forward and said, That engine was made in our shop. I guess I can fit her up and run her. And so a plan was devised for the tracks to Annapolis Junction to be repaired while the two regiments either rode the resurrected train or marched alongside the tracks. From Annapolis Junction, the troops would then proceed to Washington. And so at noon on April 25th, the 7th New York arrived in the capital by rail. One member of the 7th marching into Washington that day was Robert Gould Shaw, who later on in our story will command the all-black 54th Massachusetts Infantry. Most people are familiar with the story of Shaw in the 54th through the movie Glory. After the 7th New York's arrival in the capital, the 8th Massachusetts and the 1st Rhode Island soon followed, and then a stream of other regiments came from the north. As northern soldiers poured into Washington, a change of mood came over Maryland. That change was helped along by a severe business decline in Baltimore following the bloody riot and the disruption of the city's rail connections. Cooler heads were already beginning to prevail when Benjamin Butler, on May 4th, under cover of a heavy rain, moved a thousand soldiers into Baltimore and set up artillery on the commanding heights of Federal Hill. Butler made this move on his own initiative and risked provoking the secessionists in the city, but in fact his boldness cowed the secessionists and encouraged the state's unionists. Maryland would still bear watching, but for the time being, both the state and Washington, D.C. were safe enough under the guns of the troops who had poured south from the loyal northern states. So why did the Confederacy fail to attack the vulnerable capital after the fall of Fort Sumter? Well, the answer is that, in reality, except for the very sketchy, half-baked ideas by some Virginia secessionists like Henry Wise, no one in leadership in the Confederacy had any plans to seize Washington, D.C. in April of 1861. The Confederate leadership realized that the realities of successfully seizing and then holding the federal capital were most likely beyond the capabilities of the Southern forces immediately at hand when the opportunity presented itself. Most of the troops under the direct command of the Confederate government were stationed in the Deep South at the time, and neither Jefferson Davis nor PGT Beauregard were under any illusions in April of 61 that their ill-trained and unevenly equipped forces were capable of engaging in any sort of real invasion of northern soil. On April 27th, Robert Gould Shaw would write to his mother from the Capitol building, where the 7th New York was quartered, and tell her that with the Union troops then in Washington, quote, Jeff Davis shan't get it without trouble, end quote. Indeed, after those dark days in April, when the District of Columbia seemed in real danger of falling, the city was then transformed into the capital of a nation at war, and the Stars and Stripes would continue to fly over Washington for the next four years. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation for this episode is going to be a bit different. Since the geography of the conflict will be of more and more importance from here on out, uh, I mean, even here in these two episodes... Uh, we've talked about how Washington, D.C. is bordered by Virginia on one side and by Maryland on the other three sides, 
And some of you may not be familiar with what that actually looks like. Um, and then, of course, as we begin to talk about uh, the blockade and about campaigns and battles, maps will be really helpful in you guys being able to visualize what we're talking about. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that our book recommendation is actually going to be some Civil War atlases. And rather than go through them here, we're going to put them up on the website, so you can head over there and check them out. So, Tracy, would you like to tell everyone where they can find the whirling informational vortex at the center of Civil War podcasting? The whirling informational vortex at the center of Civil War podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, the podcast website is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then after you check out the website, we have a favor to ask. If you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider subscribing to the show and also giving us a five-star rating or even taking a minute to write a five-star review for us. Um, that helps other people find the podcast on iTunes. And uh, as we perused the different iTunes sites recently, we were happy to see our first five-star review on the Irish iTunes site. How would you say that? Vegetarian? Vegetarian? Yeah, not sure. Well, anyway, this person said... Came to the podcast about a month ago, and have already burned through all the episodes. I listened through as I cycled my way down the west coast of Ireland, and Rich and Tracy were the perfect travel companions. I've learned so much from them about a subject that previously I knew very little about. Thanks for the awesome podcast. That's neat. Well, definitely. And we love to read stuff like that. So thanks for our first five-star review on the Irish iTunes. And thanks to everyone on the other iTunes sites who have left us those ratings and reviews lately. And thanks to all of y'all who have listened to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we talk about the blockade of the Confederacy that Abraham Lincoln announced on April 19th. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for downloading episode 38 of our Civil War <laughs> podcast. <laughs> what? Why is that funny? Hey, everyone. Thanks for downloading episode 38. What? Why are you laughing? You keep pausing. I'm, I'm speaking perfectly normally, for Pete's sake.